Welcome to Rocking Our Prayers. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Evans. Now, what I'm about to say may make you feel uncomfortable. Some may even find it offensive. In some circles, it is still a distasteful taboo. Westerners rarely speak about it publicly, certainly not directly, even though most people definitely want it. As a social scientist, I am not so squeamish, so I will say it. Many people want to make money. They care about economic advancement. They want a nice home to provide for their family, keep up with their peers, and enjoy a few luxuries. But even if everyone would like to be wealthier, many readily forego additional income if they have competing priorities. Even if a poor student could get free accommodation in exchange for sex, he may still refuse. Conceivably, no amount of money would compensate for his pride and esteem. Across the world, societies vary in how much they care about economic advancement. If communities care more about getting to paradise and believe that this requires keeping their wives away from unrelated men, they may refuse her employment. In India or in Uzbekistan, men explicitly told me that no amount of money uh, would make them permit their wife's employment. They would still resist. I call this the honour-income trade-off. Families may then be caught in what I call the patrilocal trap. Daughters are socialised to get married, stay put and avoid unrelated men. Through life history interviews in Hong Kong and South Korea, I realised a crucial driver of their historic rise in female employment. East Asians had a weak preference for female seclusion and a strong desire for economic prosperity. Eager to maximise household incomes, fathers sent their daughters to work. Now, Chinese listeners may see all this as extremely obvious, akin to a tourist visiting the Middle East and exclaiming, oh well, Islam seems very important here. In my defence, none of the literature on gender in East Asia ever mentions materialism or overwhelming desire for upward mobility. Country specialists may take it for granted, perhaps not recognising how it differs from other world regions, or might have contributed to the great gender divergence. So this podcast is going to be divided into three parts. First, I want to share my methodology, how I used interviews, material culture, literature, to understand this strong cultural desire for upward mobility. Second, Confucian culture was not materialistic, but there was a strong culture of good fortune and an ideal of upward mobility in this life. And then I'll go on to explore how East Asia's 20th century economic growth led to rapid cultural change. Now, here is my question. How does an outsider, someone like me, who is not an expert on East Asia, 
identify what's culturally important. Well, I want to share my step-by-step methodology. So, about a month ago now, I went to Hong Kong's Cat Street and I visited an antique shop. Noticing these rather charming coasters with different Chinese symbols, I asked the trader to explain their meanings. I explained to him, I'm an academic, writing a book on global cultural diversity. And through further connections, uh, through further conversations, we realised a mutual connection. He was very happy and we chatted at length. He explained that fish signify wealth. That's why it's always eaten on New Year's Eve. Touring his shop, he showed me statues of the god of wealth. After we talked more, I bought half a dozen coasters and I thanked him for his kindness. Afterwards, I headed to my arranged interview with an elderly Cantonese woman whose parents had come to Hong Kong as refugees. As a way of building rapport, I showed her the coasters and asked about their meaning, even though he'd already explained them to me. Um, Lack of money are enormously important, she insisted, and she shared many, many more examples. In Hong Kong, men often go to the horse races on New Year's Day. Making money on that day is very auspicious. It means they'll have good luck for the whole year. Her nails were painted red gold and with a lucky cat, meaning bring more money. My mind was racing. If Chinese people are especially materialist, this may explain why families dispatch their daughters to urban factories. Keen to triangulate, I called a trusted friend, a Chinese professor of gender. She expressed great enthusiasm for my hypothesis and told me a funny story. I quote, Eight is the best number in Chinese culture. It's the symbol of wealth. My mum worked for a telephone company in China. She got the number 888888 and auctioned the number and made a small fortune. Kung Hei Fat Choi is a common Cantonese greeting for Lunar New Year told um, a 70-year-old professor from Hong Kong. It means, I hope you get rich. The traditional Chinese greeting is the same in Mandarin. I realised that even though these two societies underwent radically different political economies over the 20th century, their most important cultural festivals are remarkably similar. Both emphasise good fortune. Bursting with excitement, I download several books and papers on the cultural evolution of luck and money. Obviously, I read them cover to cover and wrote many pages of detailed notes on history and symbolism. Here is an excerpt from my notes. In Chinese, you, the word for fish, is a homophone of you, which means surplus. The fish should be cooked whole to show wholeness. The fish head should face elders for respect. It will be the last dish and should not be finished, so there is surplus for the coming year. Near the end of the dinner, people may say, year by year, have surplus, or or fish. I wrote many, many notes on this because I was preparing to go for dinner on New Year's Eve, and I wanted to know all the symbolism. In Chinese art, a carp fish leaping over the dragon gate represents thriving in the civil service case examinations and thereafter achieving honour as a high-ranking official. If you head over to my substack, you'll see many of these paintings. Now, luckily for me, Hong Kongers were preparing for Lunar New Year celebrations. Curious to see what they bought for their most important festival, 
I headed to the major market on Causeway Bay. Now, the entrance to Lunar New Year is red and gold, the colours of luck and wealth. Even the symbols look like gold coins. Walking around the market, everything was decked with red and gold. Um, Even flowers and cheese waffles were adorned with symbols for wealth and prosperity. Uh, There were little red packets on all the flowers. There were wishes you could buy, like for the fish, which means wealth, the cat, which means make money. There were hopes for success at school and university. You could buy a little horse head for good luck at the races. There was only one symbol I saw for romance and nothing about ancestors. So the the Lunar New Year fest, uh, fair just felt like a, a traditional German fair at Christmas, you know, with cute toys for kids and tasty food. It's like a fun family day out. The only difference in the, is that in Hong Kong, everything is about money. Um, so bright red is a very auspicious colour for the Chinese. It symbolises fortune, happiness and wealth. Knots, paper cuttings, crackers, snacks for New Year are typically all red. Red packets, Hongbao in Mandarin, Anpao in Hokkien and Laisi in Cantonese, are good luck gifts of money. They're frequently given by older to younger people at New Year and other festivals. And they were adorned with messages for luck and fortune. And there were lots of messages like get rich or so prosperous that it can fly. I also discovered in my readings that WeChat, the Chinese app, now offers WeChat red packages and millions of digital red envelopes are sent during the Spring Festival. Um, I also saw crystal uh, fortune trees decorated with crystals for money and luck, longevity and wealth. There are even um, dog costumes with symbols of wealth. There were cat mats with the lucky cat all about wealth. There were dragon toys in red packets. So all these little toys, all the kids' toys are about wealth and money. You know, if you go to a kid's store in the UK or US, you might see trains, trucks and dolls. Hong Kong's Lunar New Year Fair is far more gender neutral. I carefully observed what parents bought their children. There was no gender difference. Uh, you know, I saw little girls with a dressed in red and with a dragon. At that time in Hong Kong, I was actually staying at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And that was great because I could hang out at cafes and interview students from mainland China. And when I asked young women what they wanted in life, all of them emphasised economic independence. Um, As I mentioned, a Hong Kong had kindly invited me to their house for New Year's Eve and I wanted to take a present. So I looked throughout the market, you know, what would be a good gift? What do you take someone for Lunar's New Year? And so I chose this big pinwheel thing, like with loads and loads of pinwheels and also the Buddha. And pinwheel symbolises to turn your luck around. It's a common gift at New Year. Then after this, I went to the supermarket. And what did I see at the entrance? a massive floor-to-ceiling display that was like 10 foot tall of Herrera Rocher. Like the most gold in place and symbol of money in the confectionery world. And how was that supermarket decorated? Gold and red, the colours of wealth and fortune. Red is auspicious. And you know, that's totally different from cultures that focus on piety, paradise or spiritual liberation. 
This, I mean, the entire supermarket. I'm not kidding you or exaggerating. There was a supermarket freezer with a dragon that wishes you wealth. So, and girls and boys are getting this exact same message about what matters and about what you should strive for. After this, I went to a small mall. And what was at the entrance? A fortune tree with red packets. Uh, a couple of days later, I went to a big office um, to interview uh, you know, some prominent professionals. And again, fortune trees. Just outside the mall, there were these displays with traditional coins and red packets everywhere every, everywhere you go everywhere you turn it's all about luck and money then I, I i thought well okay you know that's just the city center let's go to the outskirts let's go to some you know little little places far inland so i went to this place fan Lai Wai, and all the spring banners on people's houses they're all about prosperity there's even a cat mat which is just decorated decorated with money everywhere i go it's all about prosperity you may be thinking, well, hold hold your horses, Alice. Is this truly traditional? Now, in my readings, it seems that good fortune has definitely been celebrated for centuries. Ever since the Ming Dynasty, um, you know, that's 14th century, a large Fu character might be displayed at the entrance of buildings to bring good fortune. It was also common to invent one's own spring couplet and hang them on doorways. And there, there are, you know, many older ones wishing people wealth and health. Now, one thing we should be clear about, Confucianism was not materialistic. Merchants were not esteemed. And the learned literati were far more prestigious. Books like the biographies of exemplary women praised women who sacrificed for male honour, not those who made money. Yang Chen, a Confucian from the Han Dynasty, is quoted as saying, and I quote, if women are given work that requires contact with the outside, they will sow disorder and confusion throughout the empire. Shame and injury will come to the imperial court and the sun and moon will wither away. Well, it's pretty clear. Confucianism and imperial dynasties did, however, celebrate meritocracy, education and prestige in this life, as you will have heard in my previous podcast. The greatest honour was to educate your son so that he achieved high rank. These ideals of upward mobility may help explain why families seized opportunities for economic advancement. So because families prioritised income, they readily harnessed female labour. In pre-communist Shanghai, women comprised a large share of industrial garment workers. Southeastern Chinese, especially the poorest classes, already accepted women's work. As early as the 1880s, middle-class women mingled with men in uh, Shanghai's opera theatres. Now, foot binding certainly looks like uh, an indicator of female seclusion. But here's something curious from this amazing book by Bosson and Hill Gates. They show that foot binding persisted for longest in cotton-growing regions. They suggest it's because it enabled labour exploitation, immobilising girls at the loom. Once railways displaced cottage industries, there was no economic incentive to hobble their daughters. The practice quickly disappeared. 
This points to mercenary motives. Now, in Hong Kong and Korea, I interviewed lots of elderly people, and I asked about their grandmothers. Back when women had six children, they were very much confined to the home, though many still farmed or undertook piecework. As fertility fell, subsequent generations seized job opportunities. Now, in the 1970s, South Korea had a per capita income of about $1,500. Female labour force participation was already, at that time, twice that of contemporary India. 40% of women worked in Korea in 1970, and it only escalated since then. So for me, the evidence is very clear. Through my observation, affairs, material culture, through reading the literature and interviewing people in East Asia. East Asians overcame the patrilocal trap because their preference for female seclusion was relatively weak and trumped by desire for economic prosperity. In the next, in the final part of the East Asia trilogy, I'm going to talk about collective harmony. But for now, thank you very much for listening. I wish you the very best wherever you are in the world and take care.